as epidemiologists and public health planners, for years we've been drilling, doing exercises. We've been talking about, you know, a pandemic or the big one hitting, for lack of a better word. The plans, the the exercises, and the strategies that we had got thrown out the window. So that was part of the initial frustration. Pandemic plans and things that folks had essentially were not looked at. That's Dr. Oscar Allen, Chief Program Officer for NACHO, the National Association of County and City Health Officials. Dr. Allen undoubtedly has one of the most important responsibilities in our public health system today, overseeing and directing funding to more than 3,000 of our country's local health departments, serving more than 25,000 health officials. In his leadership role, he also leads NACHO's national response to emergent health threats, including COVID-19, but also Zika and natural disasters. The frustration of the anti-science that we're seeing now in, in the general public, and more specifically, just the lack of desire to have that social responsibility of recognizing we're not out of the woods yet. So it astounds us that an altruistic group who are trying to save people's lives are being targeted, have death threats, are being told that they are lying, that they are part of a great scheme, and in several cases are facing physical and online harm when they're just trying to do their life's work. I'm Justin Beck, founder and CEO of Contact World. I'm here with my co-hosts, Catherine Delson and Deepti Pava. And over the coming months, we'll be talking to scientists, researchers, celebrities, experts, anyone who's been affected by COVID, and getting to the bottom of how we can improve public health together. We may not have all the answers, but you deserve to understand what goes on in your neighborhood and the decisions that will affect you and your family's health. Welcome back, everybody, to Contact World. So even though this podcast is centered around public health, we've identified racism, and I'm going to somehow add extremism as a public health issue. Before we get into the heroic work of NACHO and one of its leaders, as a theme I want to start with here, I'm deeply concerned about where we are as a country. Just like we learned about how misinformation could compromise the vaccine rollout, misinformation from our political leaders has now actually caused the insurrection of the United States government through our capital, with planned armed protests throughout our state capitals and intelligence that were just scratching the surface. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on how you've seen all this play out, Deepti and Catherine. Yeah, I think it's kind of a weird divide. We want to encourage people to share information. We don't want to suppress. We don't want to censor. But at the same time, we want to make sure that the information being shared is accurate, that it is not something that's going to be detrimental to our society, to our country. I think it's also the responsibility also of the individual to fact check. Right. Where did you get this from before you hit that retweet or share button? Where did this come from? How do I know this is accurate? Is it from CNN? Is it from MSNBC? Whatever news you listen to? Or is it just some random guy posted it on Facebook and it rings true somehow because of whatever you believe and then you just share it? So I think I want some level of accountability from the individuals in the information that they disseminate. Absolutely. But at the same time, who are our role models, right? Who are actually kind of leading our way into making us think like that. And I was 
actually very impressed by Gabriel Sterling of Georgia, who responded to President Trump's false claims at a news conference in Atlanta, and he claimed it as an anti-disinformation Monday, I mean, which was amazing. And we need more people like this to come out and counter misinformation and facts and become role models and make people and public aware that there is a way to do the fact-checking and you should always fact-check before you share something. Yeah, and I think another scary thing is that there's a distrust for the media. Growing up, you want to know what's going on, you watch the news. End of story. Now it's becoming, well, is it really the news? Is it really the right information? We should have some standards where we know if it's from this reputable source, it is in fact what's happening. Yeah, I think that we have a crisis on our hands in politics because we celebrate our frontline healthcare workers as heroes, but somehow our public health officials actually need security details because people somehow blame our public health officials for trying to save everyone's lives and make these recommendations to politicians. The conservative media has almost been a puppet for Donald Trump for years now. And the misinformation we've seen has actually been spread by the media. It's a scary time. It really is. And I think that we've only seen, unfortunately, the surface of extremism and really racism and extremism are a public health issue. And it's something that we're going to be dealing with for a long time, unfortunately. Yeah. And coming back to the topics that we usually talk about, which is health equity and vaccination and COVID, you know, all these things tying into the same theme of misinformation. For instance, you know, the problem of public communication, misinformation for vaccines, the science is clear. Vaccines save lives. But despite overwhelming evidence of the effectiveness, vaccines remain a very contentious issue, you know. Like municipalities across the country are receiving pushbacks in response to their efforts of immunization programs. And this is all cause of misinformation. I mean, do you guys have some thoughts on that as well? Yeah, I think we start with fighting misinformation with proper information, the right information getting out there. And I mean, we need to give the numbers. Who's taking those vaccines? What are the results? So if all we see is the negative information, then we tend to believe that it's true, right? If you encounter something two, three, four times, your brain just automatically accepts it as information that is valid and accurate. So it's a tall order, but it is the responsibility of the cities, the counties, the government officials, organizations like NATO to take this on and really put out the information and let people know that this is safe. Right. And I think maybe we need to dig deep a little bit into our history as well. The Ad Council, a nonprofit advertising group, led a similar large-scale effort in 1950s when they urged Americans to get vaccinated against polio. When we talk about COVID-19, vaccination is one of the biggest and the largest public education crusades in history. And we have an opportunity here to bring in the voice of public health in the right communication framework that it speaks to people through our communities. You will need to hear it from the people around you, from your communities. You know, speaking of community engagement, iHeartMedia has been incredible in partnering with CDC. They actually delivered over a billion impressions to help with COVID-19 campaigns. We're actually going to be launching a product to help with community engagement through iHeartMedia soon. But I am really hopeful that under the new administration, we're going to have a better federally coordinated response at the local level. 
Okay, guys, we've had uh, multiple conversations covering so many different things, but this episode is focused on nature. Justin, I know you spoke to Dr. Allen. Can you tell us a little bit about that interview? Yeah, Dr. Allen is the chief program officer for NACHO. As I think we've referenced before, NACHO is a really important partnership for Contact World. They actually serve the 3,124 county and city health departments and over 25,000 health officials. One of the things that we've learned at Contact World is we have not made the commitments that we need as a country to our public health infrastructure. And the things that we're seeing play out here, whether it's problems with contact tracing, testing, vaccination, really point to the dearth of resources that are provided to our local health agencies. Dr. Allen, thanks again for your time today. So can you tell us about your role with the National Association of County and City Health Officials, or NACHO? Sure. I am the Chief Program Officer at the National Association of County and City Health Officials. That's the national organization that represents the 3,000 local health departments across the country. In my role as Chief Program Officer, I am responsible for the strategic programming, the uh, executive leadership, at least on the program side, of support in both uh, technical assistance uh, for local jurisdictions capacity building. And I'm also, as a result of the pandemic, I've been the uh, incident commander sorts that we've had associated for the organization, representing ourselves on a national lens, both for emergency preparedness as well as local interaction across the country. And when I was preparing for our discussion today, you have an incredible resume spanning executive and advisor roles, um, thought leadership, and a lot of publications. Can you share what inspired you to take on a career in public health? It's always a personal story in that regard. I became interested in public health because of my grandmother. She had developed multiple myeloma, which is cancer of the bone marrow. And I could not understand why a woman who didn't drink, didn't do anything that would have been deemed as high risk, uh, had developed this illness. I kind of always knew that I wanted to be a doctor from a very tender age. But that drive to figure out what was the cause uh, led me to pursuing both biology and public health. And essentially, I went into both environmental health and epidemiology. And then while in grad school, I got an opportunity to uh, focus on local health departments. And when I graduated, I went into working at the Rockland County Health Department, where I was the director of epidemiology for roughly about 15, 16 years before coming to NHO. You know, our, our listeners span public health experts, but also just regular folks. Could you explain to our listeners who aren't really familiar more about what an epidemiologist does? Yeah, the best way of describing epidemiologists, you're a disease detective. Specifically, your role is to identify what are the trends in diseases? How are they caused? What are the reasons for their spread? And more importantly, what can you do to prevent, to either stop an outbreak or develop policies or strategies to help prevent them from happening in the future? So it's a really robust way of describing what disease detectives do in epidemiology. You joined NATO at least in executive capacity, I think in March or April of 2019. I can imagine you've had a, a major learning curve, to say the least. What have you learned about yourself in the pandemic or everything 2020? 
I would say what I've learned has been the experience that I've had at the ground level um, has prepared me to at least have better insight and better way of communicating at the national lens. Because oftentimes when you're sitting in these larger emergency centers or you're seeing these policies or suggestions come up, at times you can tell that they weren't derived for individuals who are at the ground level who need to take this digested and make it available for the community members that they serve. That's one of the things that I think I really have learned and have really appreciated is that experience that I had at the local ground uh, level really has prepared me and provided me with the ability to communicate things at the national lens as well. What would you say has frustrated you the most about, you know, 2020 and our response to this pandemic? Two things. One of the first things I would say as epidemiologists and public health planners, for years we've been drilling, doing exercises. We've been talking about, you know, a pandemic or the big one hitting, for lack of a better word. And what one of the initial frustrations, the plans, the the exercises, and the strategies that we had weren't necessarily being utilized. And part of that was uh, as a result of changes in the stance of where there's a nationalized effort, there's a federal, state, and local integration, that somewhat got thrown out the window. Right? That's somewhat got a lot thrown out the window. So that was part of the initial frustration. Pandemic plans and things that folks had essentially were uprooted or not looked at. And, you know, having to pivot and adjust to figuring out how to better integrate into this change in dynamic did have a significant degree of frustration. The second aspect of my frustration, I would say, has been even even though we were able to experience that in the initial phases, and as we've gone into this third quote-unquote wave of diseases spread of the pandemic, both in the cases as well as the deaths, it is the fact that no matter what the science has done, the frustration of the anti-science realm that we're seeing now in, in the general public, and more specifically, just the lack of desire to have that social responsibility of recognizing we're not out of the woods yet, and are still engaging in behavior or activities that are significantly jeopardizing and amplifying how this disease is continuing to wreak havoc on our lives. Right. We were actually speaking with Dr. Peter Hotez recently about the threats of misinformation from the anti-vaxxer movement. How do we overcome the trust barriers to achieve broad vaccination for COVID-19, especially in black and brown communities? You know, it's not an easy answer because there's a significant structural history that falls into play. So when we speak specifically about the communities of color, they have had centuries of disenfranchisement and medical apartheid and historical abuses by virtue of how they're interacting with the medical community. We think about things like Henrietta Lacks, right? And her cells being taken and not being told that she was being treated or being examined for cancer, but yet her cells and her family's genetic material were used for decades. And we think about the issues of Tuskegee and the syphilis, you know, the looking at Black men and not treating them for 40 plus years just to see how disease run through the population. And I even use examples of even before that in the 1800s, where the father of gynecology basically did all his practice and his experiments on enslaved Black women because they had this mentality that people of color didn't have feelings. When you look at those historical contexts, and it's not just in the African-American community, but also Native American, Latino X, et cetera. So this lack of trust over the course of time, I think has really cemented a problem 
problem of not only exacerbating the disparities that we're seeing and how the public are looking at their being at risk, but also their willingness to say, well, I want to look at this vaccine in a new light versus one of apprehension. So it's going to take a significant amount of effort to, one, develop ambassadors within the communities. And there are several that are in place right now, doctors who are signed up to be in the trial participants, et cetera, so that they can communicate what the effects are like to their uh, clients, et cetera, and their populations. So all of that is really going to be important if we're really going to turn the tide around how efficacy of vaccine and safety is being communicated. We learned a lot about the history of health equality in America from Daniel Dawes, recently executive director at Satcher Health Leadership Institute. And he talked about how, you know, our system, as you've just highlighted, not only from the trust standpoint, but also how our system has just been fundamentally flawed. What role do public health agencies play in improving health equity? The local health departments are what we call the community health strategists. They're the groups who are interfacing both with the healthcare industry and the elected officials, the community health organizations, the schools, the business community. So the role that the public health agencies play is not only trying to coalesce these great collaborations to address issues of equity, but also bring to point how these disparities are having an impact on individuals' lives. So it's not just the individual itself who are to blame, but recognizing that there's all these connected pieces, what we call the social determinants of health, right? A quick example, let's say you want to stop someone from smoking, you give them a patch, but if they're in a household where smoking is approved, the smoking is the norm, then that patch is not going to be effective. If they're in a community where you go into the stores, you go into the restaurants, or you go into bodegas or whatever you name it, and you see smoking materials materials right then and there in front of you, then you're not going to be successful from an individual standpoint. And then if you have policies that are in place that really do not provide that clear alternative to those communities, that's what we call of these social determinants, these upstream issues that have an impact on an individual decision point. And they all are connected. It's not just one over the other. So I think it's very important for health departments who help amplify this message, who help speak to the overall population health of the community to really bring these things to bear and ensure that all of the partnerships and the stakeholders are at the table to discuss them if we are to be successful moving forward. One of the things that really shocked me, you know, I don't come from public health, but I've taken an interest in helping improve the public health narrative. I was shocked to understand that only two or three percent of the funding that goes to provider care in this country goes to public health, despite, you know, you guys being in the trenches and being responsible for really protecting us and advancing health equity. How do you think our country can improve the resources for health agencies, especially the small ones that serve, you know, less than 50,000 people? So here's the thing. For our 3,000 county city health departments, only 6% of those are big cities. Mm -hmm. But yet they account for more than half of the populations that are being served. But the vast majority of these local jurisdictions are small to medium-sized. So there are health departments that may have a staff of six. Now, how are you going to be able to ensure that such a small footprint does have the workforce capacity to be able to address 
all of these needs. You know, six people are not going to solve the entire health construct for a population of 50,000. So that's where the benefit of collaboration and the team sport in public health is going to be important. Now, on top of that, the way we fund public health is problematic. Oftentimes, it's based on a disease-specific issue. So I'm just going to fund cancer. I'm just going to fund diabetes. So the real way we can address better funded in local public health is to make sure that the congressional side have an understanding that we can't just look at categorical funding to do pet projects. It has to be a universal way approaching support for health agencies in the work that they do. And there is also the need to address the private entities, you know, the business communities. People say all the time, well, you know, health is trying to shut people down and not address the economy. You need healthy people in order to have a healthy business. So those are all of the elements of how I think we really need to shift because we've lost over 50,000 healthcare workers in the health world within the last eight years. And there's even a sizable more that are being lost as a result of this COVID response. You brought up something about communities and private organizations working together. I was talking to Hannah Schultz last week, who produces a podcast called Share Public Health through the Midwestern Public Health Training Center. She brought up something that I think is really important to talk about, and I think people need to mull this over. How do we call our frontline workers heroes, which I think is completely commendable and understandable, but somehow our public health experts get death threats and need security details? That is. That should have been my third frustration to your question. And I say frustration because it's actually alarming. In the work that public health practitioners get engaged in, they don't do it for the sake of, well, we're going to make a paycheck. It is truly a sense of altruism. As I told you, I joined public health because I wanted to find out why my grandmother got sick. And by doing that, I found that there's more to it than just a single point source of cause of illness. Uh, That, yes, there's environmental factors, there are all these other factors that come into play. And that's why I ended up going to epidemiology. So my going into epidemiology or public health, similar to many of the staff across the country, has really been trying to do their life's work of helping people. So it astounds us that an altruistic group who are trying to save people's lives are being targeted, have death threats, are being told that they are lying, that they are part of a great scheme, and in several cases are facing physical and online harm when they're just trying to do their life's work. So that does not compute to me as many times as I've heard it, and even listening to the messages and seeing what our members have been sharing with us, there are some very horrific scenarios that are coming into play where people are being forced out of jobs because they're simple trying to follow our way of doing things in protection of life, safety, and wellness. So it is a frustrating and unimaginable scenario that we now find ourselves in. I've gained an immense respect for the work of public health. And I think it's unfortunate that because of the altruism, I think that it's almost like our system and our politicians have taken advantage of that and thought, well, maybe they don't need that many resources. But I I really hope that you know, especially going into the next four years that our country can really take a hard look at itself and change the narrative and stop harassing public health workers. One of the things we've always realized that health, public health, doesn't really do a good job of selling itself. Right. Because we operate in the shadows, right? Yeah. You only hear about public health when there's something big. You know, for example, there's an outbreak in a restaurant. Oh, where's the health department? You know, where's the inspectors? People are thinking things only in those boxed approaches. 
but no one really pays attention that their public health departments are engaged in safe moms and babies, teaching breastfeeding, ensuring that you have your foreign travel vaccines, as well as your regular adult or childhood level vaccines, or teaching how to have better prevention techniques around diabetes case management. And of course, with the infectious disease world and indoor, outdoor air, water quality, you name it. There's so much that public health does, but they just put their heads down, do it and move on to the next thing and don't sit back and say, hey, look what we're doing. And as a result, I think that somewhat has been a problem in really, to your point, really articulating that folks, the value of what public health departments do and how their innovation, even in light of not having great resources, allows them to be nimble and hopefully uh, be successful. I noticed that there's a lot of, I guess, buckets or almost silos where public health, like you said, works in the shadows. And we're really trying to, with Contact World, bring attention to the unsung heroes of our system. So we certainly appreciate all that you do, Dr. Allen. So you mentioned about innovation. So I understand that NACHO is launching an Innovative Practice Award to highlight the creativity and COVID-19 response. What sort of innovation have you seen from local health agencies who we've already talked about are under-resourced and underappreciated? Health departments have really stepped up to the uh, plate when it comes to looking at ways to innovate both messaging as well as access to, for example, testing. Even the role that they've had to rapidly deploy in how they can do contact tracing as well as addressing several of the needs that they're seeing in communities. For example, ensuring that we have one health department that just mentioned that folks who do not have the capacity to isolate and quarantine, they set up a system where you could actually have a hotel stay. So they work with a local hotel where individuals who need to isolate for that 14 days are able to do so in a safe manner that, of course, allows them both the security and the privacy and the ability to ensure that they are properly being cared for. Secondly, we saw in the early phases of the pandemic, recognizing that there's a need for improved community-based testing, working with several community agencies to ensure that testing can be done at at at-risk populations like homeless shelters, where, you know, at times people forget about because, well, you know, we just have to hunker down. So these local jurisdictions have really tried to find ways to even communicate. Oftentimes information comes out from an English or maybe one or two languages, but recognizing that some communities have multiple centers of cultures and working with those communities to ensure that the message is being done and the ambassadors and the community health workers are on the ground interfacing so that you are hearing the message from someone that looks like you, speaks your language, and they're able to address your questions in a way that makes sense versus, you know, as we would say, the talking heads on TV. So there's so many different areas around both integration of community interaction, looking at what technology tools can be used, you know, how rapidly they can really adapt and really amplifying their reach in that effort to really ensure that they put their best foot forward in how they want to tackle this particular pandemic response. How do you see the role of health agencies evolving over the next five years? You mentioned a couple of things with messaging, improving their communications tools. 
How do you see the evolution of the health agency, especially after the disaster we've been through in 2020? So we have seen, even prior to this, this whole concept of public health transformation, kind of called Public Health 3.0, which was an effort to look at how are health departments going to change in both the delivery of services as well as the interaction with the community. And one thing I can say, when the initial transformations began, a lot of the thought was that, well, health departments are no longer going to be the go-to, or as we call them, the safety net providers. So a lot of this will be going to the affordable care organization and other entities you know, health clinics, health centers. But what we've seen in several cases, the health departments still remain as that key deliverer of health and clinical health practices in addition to the prevention piece. So I think moving forward and recognizing the role that we have to play in both the administration of programs and intervention strategies, prevention messages, I think there's an opportunity for us to take another look at how we fashion our health department's role in the community, both from the way it's funded and the way it provides a cross-matrix approach to addressing diseases so that we're not just looking at one disease independent of others, but truly are embracing this cross-matrix approach that hopefully addresses as many points as possible while still maintaining the focus on the wellness and safety and the longevity of individuals' life. So is there a spot inside of the Affordable Care Act or the kind of the funding mechanism that is provider care where public health is inserted ever? Or is it just that public health agencies have to just manage everything on the budgets that they're handed and then hope for the best? Part of the goal of the Affordable Care Act was to develop, as we would say, the medical village, that you were not just going to one doctor's office or you're not just crowding the hospitals, but that there's this approach to really try to get things upstream before they become a problem for hospitalization. Now, what that really tells you is that the primary focus was on addressing things from a clinical hospital-based care perspective, whereas all these upstream issues are issues that public health departments have always been engaged in, but they weren't necessarily funded to support in that strategy because of a heavy reliance on a hospital-based approach. So we've had scenarios where health departments were not involved, they're not at the table when several of these policies or strategies were put into play. So where I would say moving forward and recognizing the role that these communities have now realized, especially when it comes to the COVID response, they're the ones responsible for about 80% of vaccinations. But here's the funny thing. Their staff has been pulled off doing vaccines to do the COVID response. And they're supposed to do contact tracing. Contact tracing. So how do we then pivot to ensure that in the future we're rebuilding this framework for a nimble workforce? How are we restocking the skills and integrating technology so that we can make our lives easier in how the work is engaged and deployed? And then finally, how are we also funding it to ensure that it's sustainable, that it's not just based on COVID dollars, but that we look at it as a public health prevention fund that we can at least apply for years to come. That makes sense. One of the things that I'm a little bit fearful of, and now all of that I've learned because of experts like you, is the equitable distribution of vaccines. And one of the things that I worry about, we're looking at how we're going to have these vaccination cards that are saying that, yes, I've been vaccinated. And you already have companies like Ticketmaster talking about how they're going to have like a digital verification of vaccination prior to entering events like that. How do we prevent 
the vaccines or validation of vaccines from advancing or creating more disparities in our system? Like what is the fine line between ensuring people are healthy when they enter places and also making sure that we're not creating more disparities? So it's a slippery slope. I'll actually first start with just the public sentiment around vaccines, that we know that Americans want vaccines above everything else, but they don't want one that's rushed. And that seems to be some of the prevailing point. So the real goal is to focus on ensuring that the messages around effectiveness and how the vaccines were developed in a way, shape, or form to cut at this issue of hesitancy. The other piece to that, to the point that you just raised, is that of equity. We recognize that equitable allocation distribution is going to be an issue, not only with respect to who gets it, but where. So for example, how many vaccines are going to be available to the remote and rural areas of the country when they may not have the infrastructure to really address the cold storage and handling for one? And then in addition, how do we ensure that the populations that are most impacted can get a vaccine and not necessarily be left out in the cold? So for example, one of the strategies have been, let's focus on the local pharmacies or the big ticket pharmacies. Now, technically speaking, if the vaccines are supposed to be delivered free, for lack of a better word, you still would have to be able to pay an administrative fee for that kind of distribution at a site like that. So are we adding to the equity issue by saying that you need to still pay an administration fee that individuals may or may not have. Now, the other piece, which I think is very important, is very telling as we look at what lies ahead. I'll use the example of Washington, D.C. right now, and we have heard the news that even with the initial deployments of vaccines that have come into play, the numbers that were anticipated are going to be much less than what's going to be delivered. Washington, D.C., their health department came out with a message that talked about their first allocation was only going to be 6,825 doses. Now, in that first phase of both the healthcare as well as the long-term care, they've identified about 85,000 individuals. So automatically, we already walked into an area of inequitable allocation, not even talking about the general public and getting the other access points for those hard-to-reach communities, those resource-deficient areas, et cetera. So it is a significant uphill climb that we have ahead of us. The goal and the hope, of course, is as more vaccines become available and then we get through this initial phase that hopefully we can reconcile these particular issues. But I, I would dare say that we can't go in it blind or thinking, like, oh, there's a vaccine all's good and all's well done. There's still a lot of work to go through. I mean, you're already seeing the combination of the fatigue of lockdown combining with people's false sense of security that just because a vaccine is on the way that they can do away with public health measures. I like to remind people that the countries that have done a good job with this have actually been the ones that just listened to public health measures and not, they didn't have a vaccine yet they were able to manage this because they listened to people like you. So I know that this is difficult, but if you were to remove the COVID-19 pandemic from your radar right now, what are the other threats to public health that keep you up at night? <laughs> the last time someone asked me that question, I told them a pandemic and they <laughs> found me and reminded me that I said that about five years ago. So previous to COVID, the primary causes of death and illness in our population really shifted from the infectious diseases to the chronic conditions, the heart disease, the diabetes, and et cetera. But to answer your question, what's keeping me up at night is the issues of mental health. 
and addressing the concerns about how much this pandemic has both amplified the spotlight on how disparities in race and ethnicity and also the total impacts on social, behavioral, and mental health and the capacity to address those, that's alarming. You know, there's a graph that I tend to use when speaking to communities and schools, et cetera, where we talk about that first wave of COVID being the initial acute phase, meaning the initial infections that you're getting. Then you're going to have the secondary concerns about those illnesses that are not COVID, but they're emergent. And how do folks access their healthcare system because of addressing heart attacks and other concerns? Then you have the chronic conditions that kind of got suppressed a bit, but you expect that to rise. But the biggest curve of the concern is the impact of the financial constraints, the mental health, the psychological impacts that are going to be long lasting. And we're seeing them now. I mean, we talk about it as COVID fatigue and everything else, but we recognize that even from the school-based education, these are generations of students that have had impact. The social isolation, the loss of loved ones without the ability to go to their funerals, or be there when they pass as a result of being hospitalized with COVID and not having the capacity to have visitors, et cetera. And, you know, the financial difficulties and the uncertainty and just the general tenor in our culture at this present moment, I think that compounding is probably one of the greatest fears that I have as far as the overall, what we will see coming down the pipeline as a result of what's growing underneath. You're right. I mean, I think I'm fortunate just to live in a really stable environment and I can't even imagine the impact that this has had on some people. And think about it from my experience. As I mentioned, being a local health official, local health epidemiologist, I used to write the community health plans. And I remember writing plans upwards of even 2014, 2015, where we talked about the lack of having mental health professionals in a community. This was an affluent community, 300,000 people, for lack of a better word. There was one child psychologist in the entire county. Wow. One. One. So think about that now extrapolated to where we are, that even back then where there was a scarcity of having the requisite resources for mental health and addressing clinical mental health, where are we now? And how are we supporting that both from the adult the adolescent and the pediatric lens. So it's really concerning. If you had a blank checkbook to resource health agencies, what would your top three priorities be? Top three priorities would be on the workforce, both sustaining and rebuilding it. I think we have a good opportunity to onboard folks onto the workforce that really has been decimated as a result of this pandemic. The second bolus would be on the technology. You know, we still have health departments that are receiving reports on facts. Now, that may have been a gold standard, you know, back in my time. But, you know, it just tells us that in the age of the super information highway, many health departments are sitting on that highway carrying a bus pass. Even Harris County, they had like a stack of faxes coming in to 5 million people. Yes, and their fax machine broke a couple of times in the pandemic. And the third, I would say, would be on addressing both the community integration, ensuring that the community ambassadors understand the role of public health and play a part. Because as I mentioned, you're not going to solve it with five or six people or even 300 people in one health department. It is going to be a community-based approach that can only be successful when everyone takes takes a role, takes a part, and takes ownership in how their health, safety, and the strategies that are in place and the support for public health is imagined and realized on a day-to-day basis. 
That's great. Is there anything else our listeners can do to support the public health narrative and your profession in general? I would say, honestly, reach out to your local health departments, whether it's on their social media page or, you know, dropping an email and just thank them. I think they have been beat up so much for this past, you know, 12 months and are still waking up every morning just as people talk about, you know, the emergency room docs that get up and they go, or the nurse practitioners, the anesthesiologists, the, even the bus drivers. Just thank folks. I think if we get into that mentality of just finding a moment of time to appreciate those who have put themselves at risk for the health and safety of others, I think a simple thank you goes a long way. I mean, you can't hug them because of social distancing. Give an electronic hug and thank you. That's really powerful. Dr. Allen, thank you so much again for your time today. I know how busy you are with all of this and a very insightful discussion today. Thank you. Appreciate it, Justin. Appreciate it all. We really appreciate Dr. Allen taking time to speak with us and sharing more about our public health infrastructure with you. Before you start raising hell about local restrictions that might be influenced by your local health officials, please don't forget that these heroes are only doing their job and that they care about you. How would you feel if you or your family's life was threatened just for doing your job? COVID-19 doesn't affect you in a vacuum. We're getting closer to normalcy, but please remain diligent with public health measures, including face coverings, physical distancing, and hygiene. I know it's hard. I'd like to close today's show with another challenge. Look up your local health department and send them a thank you message, just as Dr. Allen suggested. You can go to Contact World social channels where we'll be posting ideas on what to do. Again, I challenge you to thank your local health department who are helping to manage pandemic response. They are overtaxed, overworked, and often under-resourced, and we're really forgetting their role in all of this. We rightly celebrate the heroes and our frontline workers, but we really don't do enough to thank our local health agencies and the valuable work that they do. Now, I want to connect Dr. Allen's call to action to be kind to our public health servants, to our upcoming guests, who are both in healthcare, an ER doctor and a nurse. Oftentimes, we become desensitized to the problems that exist in our society, especially when we ourselves are not directly affected or suffer the deadly consequences of novel coronavirus or COVID-19. So call it information fatigue, distrust in the system, confusion over how to help, or even a desire to help. Well, on this podcast, our goal is always to present the human truths behind the words, behind the science and the theories. So on our next episode, we're going to sit with Melitza Rangel, mother, loving daughter and practicing nurse, speaks on behalf of yet another grieving family. She shares the devastating story of how her father paid the ultimate price while protecting her from the disease and all because of an overwhelmed and broken system. After multiple failed attempts at trying to secure an ambulance to transport her father to the hospital, the Wrangell family are left with an empty seat at the kitchen table and so many unanswered questions. We're going to try and get to the bottom of it. Listen to Contact World, the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. 